Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would bless once again this preaching of your word. Father, I confess to you as I do not tire of confessing that unless you enliven our hearts and open our eyes and turn us away from worthless things and turn us toward the bread of life and the word made flesh and your glory in the face of Christ that the next 45 minutes will be an exercise in vanity. And so I ask you right now to intervene and quicken your word to my heart that we might think rightly and feel rightly and act rightly. Would you enable me to speak of a worthy Savior? in a worthy manner. And that our listening and our obedience would be worthy of the glory of the one you sent to save us. Do that in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.
I'm going to need some more room. <laughs> some of the young people always tell me, you're always moving around up there. Uh, so be it. I cannot sit still when I feel things deeply. And we have quite a text in front of us today. Quite a text. Well, this morning we are continuing our sermon series on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And if you don't have a clue what half the words in that first sentence mean, uh, let me explain by way of review. Uh, This year is the 500th anniversary of a 16th century movement in the Western Church known as the Protestant Reformation. And it's called a Reformation because the the leading pastors, the leading theologians in this movement were seeking to reform the Catholic Church by refocusing people on some of the most important truths in the Bible. Truths that later historians would, would summarize in the form of five Latin phrases or solas. And we, we focused on the first one last week, which was scripture alone or sola scriptura. And today we're going to consider the second one, Christ alone or solus Christus. Now there's nothing magical about the order in which these are preached. I think it's helpful to start with Scripture alone, because that is the foundation for all else that will be said. But at the same time, I think you could argue that Christ alone is the most important of the solas. Because without Christ, all the others fall apart. Without Christ, there is no object of faith alone. Without Christ, there is no source of grace alone. Without Christ, there is no revelation of the word made flesh. And without Christ, there is no hope for the glory of God alone in our salvation. So today, I have the happy privilege of preaching on Christ alone, which seems, 45 minutes seems utterly inadequate to do this. And so here's what I'm going to, Confess this up front, okay? I had the audacity to believe that I could preach these verses in one week. And it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So this is going to be a two-part message. This is going to be Christ alone part one. And next Sunday is going to be Christ alone part two. And it's all going to be from Hebrews chapter two. Okay? So I want to begin each of these sermons with a snapshot from Reformation history. Last week, I introduced to you a man, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther. And this Sunday, I want to introduce to you a contemporary of Luther's by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. If you don't know Zwingli, it's just a fun name to say. Ulrich Zwingli, he was a Catholic priest in Zurich, Switzerland, um, who, like Luther, was passionate about the authority of Scripture. In other words, he refused to believe anything simply because the powers that be in the church told him it was true. What what Zwingli cared about more than anything else, like Luther, was does the Bible say this is true? If the Bible says it's true, I'll believe it and preach it. If it's not found in Scripture, then I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to buy it. And his early efforts to reform the church in Zurich, Switzerland, culminated in a, a public disputation or argument Yes, church history is full of lots of arguments. 
before the Zurich City Council in 1523. So that's eight, roughly six years after Martin Luther first nailed those theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. Uh, Zwingli engages in this debate, and he's debating the Catholic vicar of Constance about a number of topics, including whether it was appropriate to pray to Mary and other deceased saints. And in preparation for the debate, Zwingli published 67 articles, including the following two assertions. Listen to these. Article 20, that God desires to give us all things in his name. Whence it follows that outside of this life, the life of God, we need no mediator except himself. Article 21, that when we pray for each other on earth, we do so in such a fashion that we believe that all things are given to us through Christ alone. So what's, what's Zwingli saying? Well, he's revealing his belief, his conviction that, that even the most revered men and women, the saints of old throughout church history, cannot do for you and me what only Christ can do. Namely, function as a mediator or channel through which we receive blessing from God. There's no saint Even the mother of God himself cannot do that for you. Cannot function as the channel, the mediator through which we receive blessing from God. Zwingli was captivated by scriptures like 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Well, surprise, surprise, that the vicar of Constance disagreed. He begged to differ, and he quoted from the proceedings of various church councils and traditions to support his argument, to which Zwingli replied as follows. We know from the Old and New Testaments of God that our only comforter, redeemer, savior, and mediator with God is Jesus Christ in whom and through whom alone we obtain grace, help, and salvation, and besides from no other being in heaven or on earth. Do you believe that, church? That's what we're talking about when we talk about Christ alone. And it's important to note that the Catholic Church agreed with Zwingli when it came to the exclusive identity of the person of Christ. They agreed that in the incarnation, the miracle of God becoming man that we, we celebrate at Christmas, they agreed that the eternal Son of God took to himself a human nature and was born as a baby. Fully God, fully man. There was no argument over that. What they did not believe, however, was the complete and total sufficiency of the work of Christ. They agreed with Zwingli on who he was. They disagreed with Zwingli on the sufficiency of what he did. So the church argued that his life, death, and resurrection were essential for salvation from sin and death. But so were other things. 
So were other things, including the intercession of the saints, sacrifice of the mass. And the city council in Zurich agreed with Zwingli. They voted to support his entire reform agenda. It's pretty amazing. Including his insistence on both the exclusive identity of Christ and the all-sufficient work of Christ. But the battle, the battle over the sufficiency of Christ's work was far from over in 1523. Um, In fact, I would argue that that dispute in Zurich was just another installment and a very long struggle that actually began the moment Jesus showed up on earth and lived among us. And that struggle continues to the present day in the form of this question, church. Is the person and work of Christ alone sufficient for the salvation of mankind? That's the question. And in Zwingli's day, it was the word alone that ruffled feathers. Right? The word alone. And in our own day and age, The problem's remarkably similar, though I would argue for somewhat different reasons. What do I mean by that? How do we struggle with Christ alone in a way that's similar but a little different than the church watching Zwingli? Well, we look back on these theological debates, all these arguments in the 16th century, and we think, man, why did those people get so worked up about religion? I mean, we we all have different understandings of the truth. Why why can't we just acknowledge as much and move on? I mean, come on, people. I mean, get busy feeding the poor. Well, there's a reason we think that way, friends. There's a reason we react to the debates of old in that way. It's because we've embraced the conviction on some level that is both foreign to the 16th century mind and foreign to the Bible. It's called religious pluralism. And here's how that plays out. Okay? Listen. You believe that Jesus is an important religious figure among an array of religious figures and you can teach a course on religion wherever you want to. Wherever you want to. But if you contend with the apostles in Acts 4, that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, then you are going to be branded as intolerant and hateful. Why do I say that? Well, I say it because embracing religious pluralism has become the price of admission to the whole conversation. That's what's happened. And here's the problem with that way of thinking. Here's the problem. The Bible refuses to cooperate. <laughs> refuses to cooperate. Okay, neither, neither Jesus nor, nor all the early followers who testified to his person and work allow us to locate Christ among an array of religious figures. Listen to these words from the very beginning of Hebrews, chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, these days, church, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Those words do not locate Jesus among an array of equally significant religious figures. Those words put Jesus as supreme Lord and supreme God above all other gods. And the entire book of Hebrews, if you've never read it, it couldn't be more clear in establishing Jesus as the supreme what? The supreme prophet, the supreme priest, and the supreme king in all his offices. He's, he's the definitive revelation of who God is. He's the only one who can restore our relationship with God. And, and he is even now reigning over the affairs of men. All men. By virtue of what? His victorious resurrection and ascension. He has no competitors. He has no rivals. He's never in the playoffs. <laughs> He's not one savior among a variety of options. He is the only Savior. He's the only Savior. Why? For this reason, there is no one else like him, and there is no one else who has done what he has done. There's no one like him, his unique identity, and there's no one else who has done what he has done, his all-sufficient work. And here's where Hebrews 2, 5 through 18 is so helpful, okay? it keeps those two things together because they're connected, all right? You, you can't separate the exclusivity of his person from the sufficiency of his work. You, you, you deny the one, you undermine the other. What do I mean? Well, if you deny the exclusivity of his person, you sabotage his identity, you start playing with who he is, then you're gonna undermine and lose something of the sufficiency of what he's done. And if you undermine or question the sufficiency of what he's done through the way we live our life or fail to trust him, then ultimately you are calling to question the identity of his person. You can't separate those things. You can't separate who he is from what he does or what he does from who he is. Listen to Stephen Wellam. who says it this way. Christ's incarnation and atonement are not only interrelated, but they're inseparable. And so, both the exclusive identity, hear that, and the all-sufficient work of Christ are necessary for our salvation. Who Christ is enables the kind of work he does. And what he must do requires who he is. The church must confess Christ alone because he is unlike anyone else and because he does what no one else can do. It's true. And what I love about Hebrews 2, 5 through 18 is that it keeps those two things together. The uniqueness of who he is, the sufficiency of what he does. 
Because they're not separated. They're always, they're always connected. Why, why are they always connected? Well, here's the big idea of the entire passage, church. It's because the exclusive identity of the person of Christ is what guarantees the complete sufficiency of the work of Christ. It's who he is that guarantees the sufficiency of what he does. And the author of Hebrews, he makes that connection between who Jesus is and what he does in at least four ways, which is why I cannot preach this passage in one Sunday. (laughs) So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the first way today and three of them next week. Okay? But I'm going to give you the four up front, all right? What are the four ways in which this text helps us see why Jesus is utterly unique and alone worthy of our trust as Lord and Savior? Four ways. Here they are. Christ alone can restore us. Christ alone can deliver us. Christ alone can intercede for us. And Christ alone can help us. As I said, we're going to focus simply on the first one this Sunday. Verses 5 through 13, Christ alone can restore us. Christ alone can restore us. So look at verse 5 with me, church. At the the heart of a biblical worldview is this conviction that this present world is not all that there is. It's not all there is. Look at verse 5. There is what? A world to come. A world to come. One day, God is going to make all things new. A new heavens, a new new earth. That's what the author of Hebrews means by verse 5, this world to come. And there's something about this world to come that is of particular interest to the author. Namely, who's in charge? In other words, this author is concerned about the same thing that all my boys are concerned about whenever mommy and daddy leave the house. (laughs) Who's in charge? I'll be in charge. He's wondering in this world to come, who's in charge? To whom is God going to grant the right to rule and exercise dominion in this new heavens and new earth? Well, the answer may surprise you. It's not angels. It's the son of man. The son of man. The author of Hebrews, he quotes, look at verse 6. This is from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, the original context of Psalm 8 is all about what? It's all about the glory of God displayed in creation. And, and what stands at the height of God's glory in creation? What's, it's you and me. <laughs> it's the creation of man. That, that's the high point of creation because we bear God's image. Nothing else in creation bears God's image. But we do. And, and, and Psalm 8 echoes in this way Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
Have, have you ever wondered, friend, why you're here? Why are you here? It's been a long day at work, maybe a long day with the kids, and you're really tired, and you can't go to bed yet, and you feel so small and so insignificant, and your heart aches for a purpose, for a mission, for a reason to wake up and do it all over again. Friend, if that's you, hear the Lord speaking to you through these words from Psalm 8. You exist because I created you. I am a glorious God worthy of all glory and honor, and I have crowned you with a reflection of my glory and honor by making you in my image. All that I have made, I entrust to you. All things are subjected to you, even as you are subjected to me. Because I made you for myself. And it's in relationship with me that you'll discover your greatest joy. Friend, you were not made to live for your kids. You weren't made to live for your spouse. You weren't made to live for your boss at work or the amount of dollars in your bank account or to get all the bills paid or to put food on the table. You were made to live for God. You were made for him and to rule over a perfect world in perfect communion with our creator king. But suffice to say, if we're being honest, that is decidedly not our present experience. Look at verse 8. I don't think I have to persuade you that, that verse 8 is a rather significant understatement. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He's right. I mean, speaking of us, he's exactly right. Why? Why? Well, because the entire storyline of the Bible, starting in Genesis 3, confronts us with the awful reality that we have exchanged the faithfulness of God for slavery to a serpent. Because when our forefather Adam sinned, we, we all sinned. He represented the entire human race. And ever since then, we have universally and without exception continued to follow his lead in doing life our way instead of doing life God's way. So, so we crave and we chase after the, the things of this world. After money and power and, and pleasure instead of delighting in God. It's a corrupted dominion that we have. It's an upside-down kingdom. So instead of ruling over creation as, as God's representatives, we are what? We are ruled over by creation. We, we worship created things instead of worshiping the creator. That, that's what we see if we're being honest. 
At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to us the way it was made and meant to be. But what do we see? Look at verse 9. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to the Son of Man, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely, Jesus. At which point you should be thinking, now wait a minute, Matthew. (laughs) All these hymns are losing me, okay? I thought you said that the quote from Psalm 8 pointed back to the creation of man and that the Son of Man in verse 6 was a label, a description of the human race. I said that, and it is. (laughs) But that's not all it is. Because, friends, Psalm 8 doesn't just point back to creation. And by contrast, the reality of the fall, it also points forward to redemption. To, To the day when the Son of Man par excellence, the true Son of Man, would accomplish Jesus as the the second Adam, what the first Adam failed to do. What, What would Jesus do as the second Adam that the first Adam failed to do? Here's what he would do. He would fulfill God's purpose for humanity. That's what he would do. By living in complete and total submission to God and exercising dominion over creation instead of allowing creation to exercise dominion over him. He would crush the serpent instead of believing his lie. And that is what Jesus came to do. It's precisely why the eternal son of God became a man and and took on human flesh. He, He came to do as the perfect son of man what the entire Old Testament proves no other mere man could ever do. What what could we never do? What what is story after story in the Old Testament confront us with? Human failure. It's like the entire Old Testament, prior to the coming of Christ, is one great big flashing sign. You can't do it. (laughs) You can't. So what did Jesus do? Look back at verse 9. He was, for a little while, time on earth made lower than the angels. That should shock you. He entered our world not, not as an outsider, but as an insider. He, he took on human flesh. He was fully human in every way, except he was not corrupted by sin. And by relying on the power of the Spirit, he perfectly obeyed the Father for his entire life. Think about that. Not once, not once did Jesus ever sin. Not once did he grumble or complain. Not not once did he look lustfully at a woman. Not not once did he crave something that he couldn't afford. 
He did what we decidedly could not do. He lived his entire life in perfect submission to the Father. But here's the glorious part. Here's the glorious part. That's amazing. Here's the glorious part. You know what? He did that for us. He did it for us. Look at verse 10. What does verse 10 say? Well, it says that God the Father, who's that? For whom and by whom all things exist is the one who does what? What does the Father do? He brings many sons to glory. At which point you should be thinking, how is that possible? Isn't the whole point of verse 9 that there is only one Son of Man, Jesus, who is worthy of being crowned with glory and honor? Only one Son of Man who actually fulfilled the purpose for which man was created. How can many sons be brought to glory when only one Son embraces the purpose of our life? Well, friends, that's possible. It's possible for many sons to be brought to glory because Jesus wasn't just crowned with glory and honor. He was crowned with glory and honor. But look back at verse 9. It was because of something. It was due to something. It was the result of something. What's that? It was because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You know what the best two words in that entire sentence are? For everyone. That's the turn from Jesus is amazing to in him we have hope. Because if there's one thing, one thing that a son of man who perfectly obeys the law of God does not deserve, you know what it is? Death. There's one thing the perfect son of man does not deserve, it's death. So why did he die? Well, that's because it's what we deserved. He, he tasted death, he experienced death, he endured death for everyone, for us. Because no matter how special or good you think you are, friend, the word of God says you're a sinner. That you have fallen short of the glory of God. That you deserve the judgment of God as a result. And that unless there is blood shed, Hebrews 9.22, there will be no forgiveness of sin. So what do we deserve because of our sin? We deserve to die. Every one of us. So so what did Jesus do? Well, he died in our place. He died on our behalf. He died as our substitute, paying the penalty we owed to God so we could be completely forgiven. And he was crowned with glory and honor as a result of his death for us. Now, we got to be careful here, okay? Please hear this. Jesus didn't lack glory and honor before he became a man and died for us. He didn't lack it. Why? He was the eternal son of God. One with the father. But through the suffering of his death, he expressed his glory. He revealed his glory. He showed us his glory in an entirely new way. Through his death, he he what? He fulfilled God's redemptive plan for mankind. He accomplished what no one else could do. He finished what no one else had ever done. 
And thus the Father granted him a crown of glory that is far greater than what anyone else in this world has ever received. Listen to Revelation 5.9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain. What's that? That's being crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, what? Saying what? Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You know what that's the Bible's way of saying? Christ alone. Christ alone. Why? Because only Jesus was the lamb slain. The glory of his work is bound up in the fact that he did what no one else could do and what no one else will ever be able to do. But the Lamb of God didn't just die for us, friends. You know what else he did? He lived for us. He lived for us. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. God the Father made Jesus... Founder of our salvation, what? Perfect through suffering. Not in the sense that Jesus needed to become morally perfect, but rather in the sense that the suffering he endured rendered him perfectly qualified and able to save you. Now think about it. Think about it. There there are moments when we're studying God's word, when you're listening to preaching of the word, that it is very appropriate to say, put my thinking cap on. We got to wrestle with something here. Okay, so this is one of those. If you have an imaginary thinking cap in your pocket or in your phone, put it on your head. Okay, think about something with me. What do we need in order to be saved? Well, we need someone to die for us because we deserve to die. But what else do we need? We need someone to to live for us. Why why do I say that? Why say that? Because in the glory in verse 10, into which Jesus brings us, in, in the whole context of Psalm 8, that glory is nothing less than the glory of fulfilling God's original purpose for our life. In other words, Bringing many sons to glory doesn't just require forgiveness of sin. It requires an obedient life. It requires a representative who will obey where we fail to obey. Who will keep God's laws where we inevitably break God's laws. And who in so doing, through their perfect obedience, will fulfill every aspect of all our covenant responsibility to God. That's what we need too. And that, friends, is exactly what Jesus did for 33 years. For 33 years. In other words, the the perfection of his suffering in verse 10 includes the suffering of death from verse 9, but it includes more. 
It includes the suffering of his obedience. Because his entire life on earth took place in the midst of a fallen world. What does that tell us about Jesus' life and his obedience? It tells us it was painful. It was hard. That when Isaiah 53.3 says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, it wasn't just talking about his death, it was speaking of his entire life. You think it was easy for the eternal Son of God to live in a fallen world? No way. That The suffering through which Jesus was rendered perfectly able and qualified to save us, verse 10, isn't just the suffering of his death, but it's also the suffering of his life, of his obedience. And I I love how the Apostle Paul joins together the suffering of his life and the suffering of his death in Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient life to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do, do, you, do you realize, church, when you read that, when you hear that, that's a description of where all of human history is going. History has a goal. History has an end point. You're not just stuck paying bills and wiping dirty behinds in an endless loop until you tap out from exhaustion. And then everybody after you is just going to keep running the same hamster wheel. No. There is a goal to history. There there is an end point. It is heading somewhere. And you know what? It is heading to this place whether or not you see it when you wake up in the morning. The fact that it's heading to this place, that the trains go in this direction and can't be stopped, has nothing to do with whether you realize it's going there, whether you want it to go there, or whether you're excited it's going there. It is still going there. (laughs) Where's it going? The glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where it's going. Jesus is coming back to get that done. And when he returns, this world to come, from verse 5, is going to be what? Completely and totally subject to him. Verse 5. With nothing outside of his control. Verse 8. So friend, remember this. Remember this and be humbled. The, The ultimate purpose of human history And therefore, the ultimate purpose of your life and mine in it is not the glory of man. It's the glory of God. Allow that to humble you. God God didn't create you so that you could make much of yourself. He created you so you could make much of Christ. Christ, the son of God, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, 
is the one who will do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And though at present, for now, we do what? We still don't see, verse 8, everything in subjection to Christ. We have to remember that that's not because, like Adam in the garden, Jesus has failed in some way to fulfill the Father's purpose for his life. It's simply because Jesus is waiting to consummate at his return the kingdom he inaugurated through his resurrection. And you know what's going to happen on the day he returns? Check this out. On the day he returns, all who in this life have trusted him as their Savior will reign with our older brother, Jesus, as adopted sons and daughters of God. Can you believe that? The gospel is so much more than the forgiveness of sins. It's not less than that, but it's so much more than that. You're going to be able to call, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're trusting him to save you, you can right now call him your older brother. Because you've been adopted as a fellow son or daughter of the king. Look at verse 11. This is his point. Verse 11 says, we all have one source. So, So Jesus shares in our humanity And we share in his relationship with the Father. As what? Co-heirs with Christ. Right? Romans 8.16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, So hear this, church. Please hear this. The promise of our salvation is not just that Christ undoes or rewinds the effects of sin. The promise of our salvation is that through Christ alone, we become what God originally created us to be. Sons and daughters of the king. That's what we were originally created to be. In other words, this this son of man who is crowned with glory and honor is the one who brings many sons to glory. Now, let's get very practical here. How how do we apply this? Well, there's a lot of ways, but here's one. That means the fact that in Christ alone, God is making us what he originally created us to be. Because Jesus was, through his perfect life, what we were originally supposed to be. That means something. Very practical. What does it mean? It means you don't have to spend, if you're a Christian, your entire life on earth trying to prove your worth, realize your potential, build your legacy, or validate your existence. Do you know how exhausting that is? Do you know how tiring it is to wake up as a pastor and buy into the oh-so-tempting lie that I have to make something of this church today? Or as a dad, that I have to prove the worth of my parenting? 
or validate my existence through the way I keep all the various plates spinning and parts of my life moving and and dropping nothing or at least as few things as possible so I can fulfill this purpose for which I was created that is so difficult. Friend, the hope of the gospel is this. You don't have to do that. As as long as we live in a fallen world, we are never going to perfectly fulfill God's purpose for our life. But the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to. God God knows you can't. You'll you'll always fall short. You'll always mess up. You'll, You'll never be holy as he is holy. Now, now, is that the standard for obtaining the hope of glory? Yes, it is. But praise God, Jesus lived up to that standard for you. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus already fulfilled God's purpose for your life so you could exchange what? You could exchange the anxious toil of proving your worth in the eyes of God for the enduring joy of proclaiming God's worth in the eyes of the world. <laughs> And it's the active, representative obedience of Christ that makes that possible. He lived your life for you. And it's the reason we must never restrict the gospel merely to the forgiveness of sins. Here's what happens if we do that. As we prepare to conclude, here's what happens when we restrict the gospel merely to the forgiveness of sins. We start thinking of the entire Christian life like like walking a tightrope. So, one step of obedience. Another step of obedience. Third step. Oh, man. Blew it again. At least I know my sins are forgiven. One step of obedience. (laughs) Do you see? I mean, can you relate to that? Friends, the gospel isn't about putting the gas of forgiveness into the car of your self-improvement project. I'm going to say that again. The gospel isn't about putting the gas of forgiveness into the the car, the tightrope, of your self-improvement project. The gospel is about knowing, loving, and following the Savior who not only walked that tightrope for you, but guess what? He carried you over with him! Okay? And having carried you over, perfectly obeyed in all the ways you were supposed to obey, you know what he's not going to do? He's not going to send you back on the other side. He's your savior. He's brought you home. His work is completely sufficient. Why? Because he became a man so that he could represent us and walk that tightrope for us and carry all those who would trust him to carry them across home to glory. That's the gospel. That's Christ alone. And the only way he could do that, the only way Jesus could die in our place and live in our place is if he became a man like us. He had to identify with us so he could represent us. 
And he can't represent us unless he identifies himself with us. And so the entire hope of the gospel is that in becoming like us, Jesus made a way for us to become like him. And that is why, friends, the incarnation of the Son of God is absolutely necessary. That's why Christmas isn't optional. Okay? Once God decided to save us, the only way it could happen is if the eternal Son of God became a man. There's no other figure in the history of the world that can claim that identity. I am both the eternal Son of God and a man. Nobody else other than Jesus has that identity. So it makes him utterly unique. And it's, it's the humanity of Christ. Think of it this way. The humanity of Christ that qualifies him to represent and save us. And it's the deity of Christ that ensures that he's able to get that done. And both are necessary. And it's the presence of both that makes his work on the cross complete and totally sufficient. Christ alone can restore us. Because the identity of his person guarantees the sufficiency of his work. That's the whole point. So remember this Christmas season. The incarnation of the Son of God alone is not enough to save you. Our salvation requires a perfect life. Our salvation requires a substitutionary death. But neither of those works on our behalf would be possible or sufficient were it not for the incarnation. So we, we sing of the joy of Christmas, we sing of the joy of Easter, and we praise God that his exclusive identity is what guarantees the sufficiency of his work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You have led us through these words into deep waters. Our finite small minds can only begin to comprehend the mystery and glory and hope and power of what we're going to celebrate this Christmas. Jesus, I pray as we spend time in this passage that you would open our eyes to see that no one else is like you. That because of that, no one else can do for us what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that you would give us strength and courage and power to comprehend in a greater way this Christmas season the glory of your person the wonder of your work, and that we would not be content with a couple Christmas carols and small thoughts about Christ, <laughs> but that you would, through your word, open our eyes that we might see that you alone are qualified to save us, and you alone are completely and sufficiently faithful to save us. Teach us to glory in your person. Teach us to glory in your work. And keep those two things together.
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.